Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the third part of a special series about digital therapeutics. In the first episode, you could listen to Jessica Schul, the European lead for Digital Therapeutic Alliance, explain the basics of DTX, what they are, and how does an app qualify as a digital therapeutic. In 2010, you know, there was this realization that not only could an intervention happen just by communication, but the actual software itself could be the intervention. And so uh, the companies that were working on this, I think, were, you know, were doing groundbreaking work. And it took, you know, a lot of their innovation and pioneering to get us where we are now. In the second episode, Paul Sims from i for Pharma talked about the current state of the pharma industry and the relationship between the pharma industry and DTX. It's true that uh, drug treatments are insufficient for most chronic diseases. We have to treat the whole patient. We have to look beyond simply the clinical improvement of a patient in order for them to truly manage and own their own health. Uh, our health systems are obviously struggling to manage the rising costs of managing disease. And indeed, with a digital therapeutic approach, with that sense of self-ownership, we could take a more preventative approach to disease. Uh, and uh, that uh, indeed is far cheaper and far smarter than, than the current curative models that we try to uh, deploy. We've got three more episodes to go in this DTX series and you're going to hear about the different examples of DTX from different parts of the world. In this episode, you will hear from Jamie Moore, who is a general manager and Daybreak co-founder of a Daybreak program at the Australian organization Hello Sunday Morning. Hello Sunday Morning has a mission to change the world's relationship with alcohol. Their program is already reimbursed in Australia and with the rise of DTX recognition around the world, Daybreak could soon be reimbursed in other countries as well. In this episode, Jamie talked about the early days of Hello Sunday Morning, the drinking culture in Australia, the meaning of community support in tackling alcohol addiction, and the current impact of the COVID crisis on alcohol consumption. When Hello Sunday Morning was founded over 10 years ago, the emphasis was on binge drinking. But by today, the user structure has changed and Daybreak members are predominantly dependent drinkers. They are very much on the heavy end of drinking with 40 plus drinks per week. Some users are moderate drinkers. Enjoy the discussion or read the recap of the show on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. The link to the summary of this episode can be found in the show notes. Also, in the next two episodes, you will be able to listen about two other DTX companies, Kaya Health, which was founded in Germany and is now active in the US. Kaya Health is tackling chronic pain management and soon COPD. Another company you will get to know is Wealthy Therapeutics, one of Asia's leading digital therapeutics. So subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your shows so you don't miss the upcoming episodes. Now to Hello Sunday Morning with Jamie Moore, who has a first-class honors in psychology and started his master's in organizational psychology but dropped out to focus on building software to address the issue of high-risk drinking. 
Hello, Jamie. Tell me, how are you doing in these days where the whole world is self-isolating? How is Australia on that front? I'm, I'm doing okay and, and, and my family is doing okay. Um, Australia, it's, it's getting weird. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I even went out this morning to get a coffee and you're still allowed to do that. And I had a discussion with the barista and it, things, things are getting weird. Like, couple of days ago or, or even I think yesterday our Prime Minister announced that social gatherings are now limited to two people in public and really we're just being told not to leave the house unless you're getting groceries or essentials and they haven't done a, a formal ban of going outside yet um, but it's, it's something I think people are, are very anxious about and, and think is coming. Which brings us to the question related to Hello Sunday Morning. So Hello Sunday Morning is an organization based in Sydney and you uh, have a mission to change the world's relationship with alcohol. Alcohol, besides coffee, is a socially very acceptable drug. And um, I'm sure that in these weird, uh, unusual times, many people search um, a little bit of of distressing or um, relief in that. Are you noticing any of those trends? Those those trends around increased drinking are, are being seen in Australia already and I believe are, are being seen around the world. So that we saw the World Health Organization came out a couple of days ago sort of letting people know that you know, drinking copious amounts of alcohol is really not going to be an effective long-term coping mechanism for periods of social isolation you know there's there's been many interviews and news stories in australia written about this already um young people in particular had sort of been telling the media that you know alcohol was sort of this social lubricant in society for them but now it's really becoming a necessity to to get them through the day in their households so we are really concerned about what's happening already but if this is going to go on for six to 12 months like it's it's going to end up having a huge impact on the health system because we're going to see people going to hospital and emergency departments because of alcohol in a in a time we want people to be healthier than ever you know and we want people to be avoiding those those preventable hospitalizations so yeah we're, we're really concerned and, and something we can talk about more did you say that young people are the most uh, problematic, it seems? The data is showing in Australia that the drinking of young people has actually been decreasing over, say, the last 10 years. And the, the drinking amongst older populations, sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, is actually increasing. And that data also supports the type of person that signs up to our program as well. So a lot of people think, you know, oh, you know, young people and binge drinking, that, that's the problem we have in society. And while it is an issue, we see heavy drinking across the spectrum, even you know, people in their 60s and 70s. So whilst some of the, the media articles in Australia around COVID have been around young people and their drinking, I don't think we can just point the finger at young people. Like we've, we've seen alcohol you know, purchasing and hoarding all across the age spectrum so far. Because I would expect that there's various aspects to this. So in one case, you've got people that are suddenly isolated and completely alone. And then on the other hand, you've got families perhaps in cramped apartments or in bad relationships, which can all be reasons contributing to higher alcohol consumption. People use alcohol even before this for a reason, right? So you might drink to relax, you know, you might drink to sort of feel more confident or you might drink to 
deal with feelings of anxiety that you have. So, you know, if you're a person who, who drinks because of anxiety or to escape, that potentially is only going to get worse in the current situation if we can't get people help. And, you know, you sort of the things you raise around domestic violence and the other issues that come from that, like there's been anecdotal evidence coming out of China that households that didn't have issues of alcohol consumption and domestic violence previously had them during the lockdowns and during these periods of social isolation. So it's something we need to be aware of. Let's go a step back and talk a little bit about Hello Sunday Morning. How did it begin? It's over a decade old organization. What do you actually do in your words? Um, we've been around since 2010. Um, so we have sort of an interesting story in that our uh, founder was actually a nightclub promoter. Um, and as a, a young man in high school, uh, he, he tells me he used to bootleg alcohol into his sort of dormitory. So he had a really interesting relationship with alcohol himself. So he was working um, as a nightclub promoter, as I said, and also in marketing. And the marketing company he was working for won a contract to deliver a binge drinking campaign for the government. And so the, the campaign that he came up with as a, a 22-year-old was really the, the type of thing we've seen before, one of those sort of scare-based drinking campaigns with the maybe the young man getting in a fight or the young woman in the, in the bushes vomiting. But he realized that, it, that wasn't going to change his behavior. Um, so he figured, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to figure out actually what would change the way I drank and, and what is my relationship with alcohol. So he took 12 months off drinking um, and he actually started a blog and every Sunday morning he released that blog around what it was like for a 22 year old to sort of step out of the drinking culture for a while and he called it Hello Sunday Morning. And what happened was that got a lot of media traction and, and a lot of interest from the community and then slowly towards the end of that year some of his friends and people he knew said, you know, I want to jump on and do three months of no drinking or cutting back on drinking as well and I want to blog about it too. And really, that was where the Hello Sunday Morning community began. And, you know, today we've had over 200,000 people um, have a similar experience in one of our, our products. So tell me a little bit more about how the community grew in the past up until today. And what kind of support do you offer? Yeah, it's really changed over the years. So initially in 2010, if you remember back to then, you know, blogging was still maybe relatively new and relatively cool. So we had a really just a basic WordPress website that we built um, that enabled people to sign up, choose if they wanted to do three or 12 months, choose if they wanted to not drink or cut back on their drinking. Um, and literally they would just write what they were feeling in an incredibly authentic way about what they were going through, the challenges they faced, the good things that came from it. And because of the experience that, that Chris, our co-founder, had had and been so honest in his journey, the honesty and the authenticity around the writing was just like nothing we'd ever seen. And so people would post and then they could choose to share that um, externally if they wanted to, but mostly people in the community would comment. And we, we started building this, this forum where there was thousands of people supporting one another. So that did just start as you know peer support, if you want to frame it that way. And what happened over the years is in, say, 2014, we had a look at the data and we saw that at the beginning, the majority of people signing up were like young people in their early 20s, late 20s, talking about binge drinking. And this sort of experience was like a social experiment for them. But as we'd you know, gone ahead four years, slowly what was happening was 
people signing up were getting older. So they were 30, 40, 50, and the drinking was very different. So it wasn't this weekend binge drinking anymore. It was people who were really struggling with alcohol as this daily thing in their lives. And we looked at their writing and it was like, wow, these are these are people that really maybe would use something like AA or maybe even need you know, their doctor or some other type of face-to-face support. And that's where we pivoted and we realized that what we were offering at that time, uh, while really engaging, um, needed more clinical evidence behind it. And that made us go towards the journey of the Daybreak program. You offer a program called Daybreak, which helps uh, people change their relationships with alcohol through supportive community, habit change experiments, one-on-one chats with health coaches. Can you tell me a little bit more about the clinical evidence or clinical trials or just tracking of data and findings that you came up with through this app? So it's a a personalized online program um, accessible on mobile app or through uh, web platforms. Many of our, our users we found actually don't want to download apps. They're in the sort of older bracket um, that may be a bit untrustworthy of apps, so prefer to go through a website. Um, and, it, and it does. So it provides supportive and, and moderated online community, provides access to um, evidence-informed experiments, um, and also it provides access to one-on-one health coaches. Um, and so the health coaches are actually psychologists or counsellors, so they're, they're trained and accredited. So in terms of, I guess, the evidence, before I jump there, if you think about the innovation and what we've done in, in Daybreak, and this does lead to the evidence, it's not innovative because it's an app. Like there's lots of health apps out there and you can build on really quickly if you want to. What's innovative about what we've done is previously it had been thought that supporting really heavy drinkers, you know, people that are, are probably dependent on alcohol, doing that online could not be done safely uh, and could not be done effectively. So where we've been innovative with Daybreak is we found a way to do that online. So it means we can support thousands and thousands of people every day, every week, where a normal face-to-face service just wouldn't be possible. And we can do that in effective and safe way. How do you manage that? Is there a lot of member-to-member support? Before you mentioned blogging, and I wonder if today when people are overburdened with digital stimuli and where when attention span is shortening, you know, 30-second videos, 15-second videos is what you can expect people to see with interest on social media. So I'm wondering, like, to which extent are people open to writing about their experiences in a long format or really taking time to listen to someone else's problems if that's not their professional duty? And really, that's a, a major change we've made in Daybreak from our past programs. So the original platforms were blogging, long-form platforms. But in Daybreak, we actually significantly shortened that. So uh, it's it's definitely not social media. That's not what Daybreak offers people. Um, it's an opportunity for them to um, share. So they, they share a post um, and there's actually a character limit on that. So it's not a, a long-form thing. It's more of a brief thing. It's quite a large character limit. So they can, they can talk in, in quite great detail. And then the key to it is not just them sharing how they're feeling, but us getting them reactions from the community as quickly as possible. So what we find is somebody signs up to the program, 
We support them to post their first share to the community. And our real goal is to get them a response to that share, not from us, um, but from another peer member within five minutes. And what that shows them is, wow, there's this community here that I've come to, been really authentic around what I'm feeling, and I've received immediate empathy and support from other people going through the same thing. And that's what they're looking for because often in their personal life, that's not there. Like you would think that when you make a decision to cut back or quit drinking because it's a problem for you, your friends and family would be your number one supporters. But we've had stories of, you know, women saying they've joined Daybreak, told their mothers and their mothers have said, why are you doing this to me? Like drinking together is what we do. Like, is there some issue with our relationship? rather than saying to them, like, well done, like, I'm here to support you. Which just indicates how big the whole problem about the alcohol in society and uh, the attitude that you have towards it is. I was actually surprised when I was looking at some statistics from the uh, World Health Organization, which showed that alcohol consumption is higher uh, in Europe or Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, than it is in Australia. Yet Australia is very famous for, for binge drinking. I believe we we have a little bit of a reputation for being people that can't stop once we get started um, when it comes to drinking. I mean, my experiences living overseas probably showed me that the way I drank was a little bit different. In what way? I think the amounts in single sittings. So, you know, when Australians drink, many Australians and not all Australians, you know, it's not one or two to, to sit down and, and have a chat. You know, it's sort of 10, 15, 20 to really, as we'd say, get amongst it and, and have a big, big night. And that's really acceptable behavior, not just amongst young people, but amongst older drinkers as well. Um, and I, I found like I, I lived in the US in my early 20s and when I was at college there and even in a college environment, I could see that, you know, the levels of consumption I would have Uh, on the days that I drank, like people like, wow, that that's a lot of alcohol. And that was totally normal for my friendship group um, back home. So I, I think that's the, the reputation that, that we have um, as a country and, and one that it is slowly changing, um, but you really notice it when, when you look overseas. Given the age of your organization, uh, did you manage to change any of that perception or you got some attention from the government? So how are you influencing the whole culture? Culture change is an incredibly difficult thing we've learned. So our mission is around changing the world's relationship with alcohol. And, and that word relationship is really important because different people can drink in different ways. So as much as possible, we try and not tell people how to drink or how much to drink. But you sort of know yourself, you know, if you're drinking too much or if your relationship with alcohol isn't great. And in the early days, we used to do a lot of marketing campaigns around the drinking culture and the binge drinking culture and those types of things. But it was just so difficult to measure our impact. And you would see shifts in drinking, especially among in alcohol, like consumption levels. Unfortunately, in Australia, like the, the risks and the damage of alcohol are still rising. So we're seeing less drinking, but maybe more dangerous drinking. But we just couldn't pinpoint, well, this thing we did caused this change in the culture because culture is kind of everything and so many things contribute to it. So now we're much more focused on how are we changing the drinking and how are we improving the mental health and the productivity 
of an individual person through our program, which we can then say has an impact on the wider drinking culture that we have. So let's talk a little bit more about your program. If I'm not mistaken, you are qualified as a digital therapeutic, which means that your digital solution has clinical evidence of its efficacy. So what kind of results uh, did you measure so far? We are, we are a member of the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, so I believe you have um, a pretty good understanding of and maybe are speaking to some others about uh, Megan Coda, uh, who runs the Alliance. Um, they would refer to Daybreak as an aspiring digital therapeutic. So we're certainly not a, a regulated, fully approved digital therapeutic as yet. So where we're at is really there's sort of four key stages. So, you know, one, patient satisfaction and engagement in which we're incredibly strong. You know, we've had close to 100,000 people use and, and download the platform. You can see our um, ratings on the app store and the engagement levels off the charts um, compared to traditional support services. In terms of clinical effectiveness, So we've run a study with a university in Australia um, and had some really great outcomes. So it shows that engagement with Daybreak significantly reduces alcohol consumption for two groups. So one group is this group of, of probably dependent drinkers that I spoke about. So these are people having you know, 40 plus drinks per week. And it's been shown that Daybreak supports a reduction in that down to 20 drinks a week. So that's still more than you know the world health organization would recommend um, but 20 is a much much safer level than the, the 40 plus that they were at and the second group is you know what you would i guess term harmful alcohol users so these are people having the sort of 20 to 30 drinks a week and the use of day breaks bringing that down to anywhere from 10 to 12 drinks a week which is definitely in that you know low risk safe range that the world health organization would talk about. Your program also consists of techniques such as mindfulness. Do you think um, this model could be transferable to other addictions as well? Has anyone thought of that? Is that not in your focus? Is there any other com uh, companies that are trying to do what you're doing? Just The question about other addictions and, and our technology and, and software's capability there is something we get asked um, every single week. Where our organization is really focused is on alcohol as an issue. Um, so Daybreak at the moment is supporting a group of people around the world with a particular, I guess, issue around drinking and a need that Daybreak can help them solve. So that's the need for immediate access to a, a peer community and immediate access to a professional that they can chat with to get trusted advice. I guess where we're at is while the software could be used for other addictions like marijuana, pharmaceutical drugs, you know, even non-substance addictions, um, we're probably more interested in what other pieces of technology can we build that help other aspects of the alcohol treatment sector. So we know that internationally, like wait lists for rehab and face-to-face -face services are a big problem. And we also know that relapse is a big problem once you leave one of those services. So there's definitely capacity for us to build other programs that sort of help other 
populations in the alcohol space. And I think we'll probably leave it to our other trusted friends in the Digital Therapeutics Alliance to, to focus on the other substance addictions for now. I'm assuming you are also running campaigns for art promoting uh, less drinking or for people to choose to abstain from drinking. Did you ever face any issues from the industry side because of that? Yeah, so we have run in, in the past, you know, campaigns around the drinking culture and, you know, reducing your drinking most definitely. These days, most of our campaigns actually um, promote individuals that have had success using the program. Um, we actually find that's much more effective for people to share their personal story around using Daybreak, the impact that's had on their life, you know, how they drink now or if they don't drink and, and what that means for their, you know, mental health and their productivity. In terms of, of the industry, it's, it's like such a fascinating question because in Australia, the, the sort of public health sector, so organisations like ourselves that, you know, promote, you know, reductions in obesity and drinking and smoking and the industry, say the alcohol industry, the, the relationship isn't the healthiest, which I know is, is a little different in other countries. Like I've heard in Canada, the public health and the alcohol industry work a little bit better together. We think personally that the alcohol industry has a really strong part to play in helping people drink at healthier levels. Like for them, having someone who drinks at lower risk levels for a longer period of time is, is probably a better customer um, than someone who drinks very heavily um, and dangerously for a shorter period of time and, and causes damage to society. Um, and also then government comes in and, and wants to regulate alcohol the way they have with smoking. So while we've had you know good conversations, I guess, with the alcohol industry about what we do, and, and they're very clear that our goal isn't to make the world abstain, like our goal is to help people drink in a safer way. They don't support us financially, and I wouldn't say um, they're big supporters of our work. Do members use your platform only for a shorter period of time? Or is it that once they start using the platform that they become long-term users? And what are the trends uh, now in these sensitive times? I guess we're in this interesting position as a an app um, where we don't want people to use us for a long time. Like We want people to come and have an experience with us get the support they need and then have addressed their issue and be drinking less. So to that effect, um, we're sort of different than Uber, right? Who want you using their app every single day forever. And we, we have members regularly that write to us and say, I've been using your platform for a year. I'm doing great now. Thank you so much. Like, can you please delete my profile because I want to move on from the past me. Um, so while that looks terrible for our like, engagement metrics, it's a fantastic outcome for that individual. So if we look at so how our users and members um, access the program, it's very different. So some use it every day, some might use it weekly, some might check in monthly, but really we try and get people to, to stick with the program for anywhere from sort of eight to 16 weeks. Um, and that's when we start to see the positive changes. Um, but some people come in for a briefer amount of time and that's all they need. Some people have been on the platform for many, many years and, and they use it as a way of maintaining um, their sobriety or maintaining what they have achieved. So here what's important is more the, the comparison to other services. So if you look at our engagement and retention rates, um, they would be higher than what you would see in a face-to-face -face service. But if you compared our rates to like another non-health related app, um, they might look really poor. So the, 
the comparison there is important. Are users anonymous? This is one of the the really great things about our program and then also one of the really difficult things. Um, so maintaining anonymity is incredibly important for people in our program because people that use Daybreak are just everyday people. Like, you know, there's people that might be CEOs of really large companies, like they could be sports stars, they could be the, a mother with, with three children that lives next door. Um, they're just everyday people that struggle with this problem. Um, and there's so much shame and stigma around drinking and particularly wanting to reduce how much you drink. People aren't public with that yet um, and they and they don't want other people to know about it. That's why we have things like AA. So in Daybreak, we really recommend that people stay anonymous um, and they don't share personal details and use their real name. Um, but in the back end, we do have their personal information, which we ask for. And we do that because we need to maintain the safety and the security for the member. Sort of going back to the point that I'd made earlier around our innovation being we can support these people online in a safe way, which previously wasn't thought possible, means that if we need to intervene with an individual, so we have a whole team of clinicians and moderators in the back end that a member wouldn't even see, we can do so in a safe way to get them support in a crisis if they need it or to sort of help them access other services if they need them as well. So it's a, a really delicate balance of maintaining someone's anonymity and privacy and sort of their right to go through this program the way they want to, but also making sure that we take care of them um, when they need someone to take care of them. How often does that happen that you have to intervene? In a clinical risk setting, like very, very seldom, like maybe once a month, do we have to intervene, you know, around issues of suicidal ideation or alcohol withdrawal or something like that. Like it's it's not too often we need to do that. Um, where we do intervene often is around um, what we would call a breach of the community guidelines. So the, the way we've built Daybreak um, and sort of moving into the, the more science and the technology behind it here, there's like deliberate design decisions that we've made that reduce significantly incidents of bullying and trolling and some of those problems you see in online communities. So what it means is we don't really have many of those issues at all. And if we do, that's when we intervene and we let people know that, you know, that's a breach of guidelines. But often before we even do that, the community of peers are doing that themselves. So if somebody leaves a comment on someone's share that just really isn't helpful or is maybe rude or a little insulting, often before we've even seen it, the peer community are stepping in and letting people know, you know, that's not acceptable in this community and this is why we're here. And other reasons we may step in is, you know, someone might share their personal email or their phone number or something like that um, and we'll get in touch with them and, and ask them to remove that for their own safety. Um, but the the clinical risk we, we manage really well in a in a population of people that are at, you know, much higher risk for a lot of I guess, health and crisis issues. I uh, got stuck on the word that you used, and that is acceptable. I think in many situations, and your members also often talk about uh, social expectations to drink. So I would say it often seems unacceptable, you know, that you don't drink at a wedding if you go for an afterwork drink for a hands night or similar occasions do you have any advice as you know how can people just get the courage or the strength to um, avoid drinking when they really 
don't want to, but they are almost forced into it because of the peer pressure. The cultural pressure around, you know, drinking at those events is just, it's just ridiculous sometimes, isn't it? Like the, the thought of, you know, not drinking at a wedding, the, the look that people would give you, um, they would think you're a crazy person. Like I remember many years ago, um, a good friend of mine was starting a new job um, or he'd maybe been there a month and I had asked him how he was going and you know, what the drinking culture was like, because that's something I'm, I'm obviously really interested in. Um, and he said there was a lot of heavy drinking and the expectation was that you went to these events um, after work and you drank. And I think he was he was actually struggling with it a fair bit. So I asked him, you know, why he just didn't not, why just not drink at the event or not go. And he said, well, I don't want to be the new guy that isn't getting involved and, you know, seen as doesn't want to be having fun. So it was actually, in his mind, going to impact his career if he didn't drink which is like a horrible thing for someone to go through. Um, so the, I guess that the things that we suggest to people, like they, they do come down to the individual and we have coaches um, in Hello Sunday Morning, in Daybreak, sorry, counsellors and psychologists that can chat to members one-on-one around this. You know, one thing that works for a lot of people is not just having, if you're out at a drinking event, a glass of water, like maybe asking for a sparkling water in a glass that looks like, it's an alcoholic drink, you know, putting some lime in it. Um, often that will remove the question, oh, you're not, you're not drinking. Other things we suggest to people are, you know, finding a couple of trusted people in the group um, that you can lean on and sort of let them know what you're aiming to do and, and why you're not drinking. And they can sort of be your backup on the night for when you get the inevitable question of, oh, why aren't you drinking? Like, what's going on? Um, and instead of you having to explain yourself over and over you can have a couple of trusted people there that can sort of step in and and back you up um but the the communication around it is key um and and sometimes the suggestion to people in the early days is you know what you maybe you just can't go like maybe for the first couple of weeks you know not going to those after work drinks or not attending that wedding is is the best decision for you if alcohol is really getting in the way of of your life which is really sad that we wouldn't support each other around this like if you we're trying to lose weight and you told people that everyone would be your biggest cheer squad but for some reason with alcohol it's just not the case cocktails for example they have quite a lot of calories so that might be an excuse that people would support but i think it's so misfortunate that we actually need to look for excuses if we don't want to drink i know that one that i often used or use if i feel pressured into drinking is just saying that i'm on medications that require you to abstain from alcohol and that's it's interesting to observe the reaction that people have you know suddenly they they go like oh yeah i get that what what i've observed it's actually about trust so if i'm say at a pub and i and i drink so if i'm at a pub and someone asks me what do you do for work If I tell them about what I do for work and I don't have a drink in my hand, I literally see the way they look at me as I'm judging them or I don't understand or I can't be trusted. But if I have a beer in my hand, like the level of engagement they have in the conversation and interest is 100x. You know, it's like they're saying, oh, you get it. Great. You drink like I can trust you and and you understand. So it's just such a a fascinating Uh, dynamic that we have in the world around alcohol is this, you know, dangerous drug. Like it it is a dangerous drug and that's accepted by many, many people, Um, but it's legal and it's readily available. Um, So it's it's just so hard for so many people when they want to cut back on it. Are you currently only present in Australia? 
No, so we're actually international. Um, so the Daybreak program um, is accessed in Australia predominantly, and then um, we have large um, user base in uh, the US, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, Ireland, like really people all over the world use the platform. But Australia at the moment is the only country we have reimbursement status in. So what that means is in Australia, um, the program is free for around 8,000 people a year. And we're working with the government to try and increase that number. Really, the demand is anywhere from sort of 30 to 40,000 people a year. So we've got a, a long way to go to increase our reimbursement. Overseas, um, we don't have reim- reimbursement yet. So what that means is members have to pay out of their own pocket to access the program on a, a monthly or a, an annual subscription. But that's it's, it's not a model that will scale the program and, and frankly isn't a model that's fair for people. Like this should be a service as a, a effective health service that's made available free through either government or private health insurance. So that's sort of a focus of ours over the next couple of years. How did you manage to get reimbursement in the first place and what kind of challenges are you facing in this regard I can imagine that some insurance on markets with uh, private insurance would see that as a potential reason to increase a premium or something. So people would be afraid to take upon such a program through an insurance. Yeah, so in, in Australia, um, we achieved reimbursement um, through the federal government. So over here, um, how it started is we achieved reimbursement in sort of certain pockets of Australia. So the, the country, you know, briefly and boring is, is split into these 31 health regions. And so we had 15 of the health regions paying for daybreak in their area. Um, and we used that to have a conversation with the, the federal health minister, Greg Hunt in Australia, who then provided reimbursement nationally for the program. And that's sort of rolling until at least the end of this year and, and potentially for the next three or four years. In, in Australia, we have, um, community rating on private health. So it actually means a health insurer can't charge you more in Australia um, if you have an issue around alcohol per se. Um, but my understanding is that is different in, in other markets, particularly maybe even in the US. So that could be a, a problem if we went through the private market, people having to sort of admit that alcohol is a problem and they needed help around it. So that's that's one of the, I guess, issues that, that we have. But probably the Probably the main issue, like, and this is in Australia and overseas, is that there there isn't a really clear mechanism for reimbursement for digital therapeutics. And, you know, this is something the Digital Therapeutics Alliance is working really heavily on. So, so we could say, go to Canada and say, hey, you have 30,000 people that could benefit from this program easily each year. But how we would go about getting into a funding model um, is really, really difficult and unclear, even if we have all the clinical evidence, economic evidence, all the safety and accreditation evidence to show that the program works. So this is something that around the world, you know, we need the health system reimbursement to catch up to what technology is capable of and what patients want. So what kind of barriers to market are you facing when trying to enter other markets? Yeah, so in markets overseas, our main, I guess, barrier right now, in terms of people accessing the program, there's no issues. Like we're on the app store and they can download and, and access the program. They just have to pay themselves. Probably our main barrier is like 
resource and time. So we're really at the moment heavily focused on Australia and, and increasing our reimbursement level from that 8,000 people a year up to sort of 30, 40,000 people a year. Once we have that in place, really we'll just have more time to go to markets like the US, Canada and begin those conversations. Um, so before everything happened with COVID, um, I'd actually been planning a, a trip to Canada in March um, to meet with some really senior health officials from Health Canada and some people from the provinces and other people in the alcohol treatment space to, to begin those conversations. Um, some of that obviously is on hold with the travel restrictions, but you know, right now, like a message for government is that more than ever, like giving your residents access to online services that can help with them with their drinking is paramount. Like we know that AA groups are closing. We know hospitals are closing. Rehabs are closing. That doesn't mean you're not going to have a bunch of people, thousands of people that need help with this, with this problem. Um, so we'll be reaching out to sort of governments all around the world um, via email and video call as soon as we have time to. So kind of ironically, is this crisis a little bit of an opportunity for you? Yeah, I mean, for digital health overall, like this is really digital health's time to help. Like most digital health companies like us are really privileged in that our services haven't had to shut down. Our people can keep working. So we're, we're privileged to be able to help thousands of people. Um, and we're doing everything we can in Australia right now to do that. In respect to the advancement of technology, it's definitely an opportunity. Like what we've seen in crises and big events like this in human civilization, whether it's world wars or other health issues, is the the speed of adoption of new technology goes up incredibly. So in Australia, we've seen services that have been operating face-to-face -face for 100 years being forced to go online or forced to go onto telephone. And we're talking to them and we're asking them how it's going. And they're saying, you know what? Actually, our clients love it and our clinicians love it. It kind of makes us wonder why we see people face to face so much. So you can see by being forced to move into the new world and adopt new technology, people are realizing the benefit that digital health companies have been telling them for a decade. They can realize. So definitely an opportunity, um, but, but more so like any digital health company, like you are privileged right now to be able to help. So just do everything that you can. The world is definitely going to be different after this uh, crisis is over in terms of uh, consumer habits. But um, it does seem that it's going to take a while before all this is over. So any last uh, thoughts, words, encouraging advice that you might have in regards to uh, drinking in this time? I think my advice is, you know, If you feel like you are increasing the amount you're drinking or as we're seeing people starting to drink earlier in the day than they usually would, like please reach out to somebody you know, either a friend, like I guarantee you, you'll have someone that can jump on a Zoom call with you and talk about something that has nothing to do with COVID. If you can't do that, like reach out to a professional network. Like I know in Australia, there's COVID hotlines that have been set up. They'll be able to direct you to a service that can help. And if, if you're overseas, you know, search for something like Daybreak or search for another online solution um, that can support you because they're out there um, and they work and they're accessible. So just don't don't feel like you're in this alone. Like it's actually a really strange occurrence for me as a, a 32-year-old in that It probably doesn't matter who I speak to in the real world right now. Like we're all in the same position. Um, so just know that. Mm -hmm.
You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Coming up next, tackling chronic pain with Kaya Health. If you want to know more about other episodes in this series, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. If you like these shows, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps spread the word and help those interested in digital health find the show as well. Thank you.